0: Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early-stage VC.
1: We're your hosts, the Nastas and Jenny of The Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early-stage VCs out there.
0: In this episode, we're excited to spend time with Jenny Abramson, who is the founder and managing partner of Rethink Impact which is the largest US-based venture capital firm investing in female leaders that are using technology to solve the world's biggest problems. Jenny is based out of the Washington DC area and is a native Washingtonian herself. She has been an entrepreneur in the past and served as CEO of a company called LiveSafe and has also held leadership roles in the Washington Post, Personal, which is a data tech company, the Boston Consulting Group, DC Public Schools, and Teach for America. Jenny, thanks for joining us today. I thought I would start with your fund, Rethink Impact. So can you tell us a little bit about what the fund is all about and what kind of investing strategy you all have?
2: Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited to be with you. Rethink Impact is the largest venture capital fund in the country, investing in female CEOs, all of our companies are tackling our world's greatest challenges, whether that's in healthcare, education, environmental sustainability, or what we call economic empowerment or fintech for good.
0: Got it. And that's that has been a lot more popular. Obviously, historically, VC has been an industry that has been dominated by males, but there's been a great effort in the last few years to change that. Tell us a little bit about the story. How did you zero in on that strategy? And why do you think that's a strategy that is effective?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. We definitely were investing in women a little before it was cool. In about 2015, I I had been a CEO myself, and I was often the only woman on a given stage or in a given room. And it seemed odd since I had gone to great schools with great women. And when I, as a data nerd out of Stanford, I looked up the numbers and saw that less than 3% of venture dollars, I think at the time it was like two and a half percent, were going to female CEOs. And I found an incredible amount of data that showed that actually female led companies have a higher ROI or more capital efficient, have all the metrics that one looks for when you want to make money. And so it actually seemed like a pretty exciting opportunity. And the data really hadn't changed since my own mom, who did venture capital 20 years earlier, had been investing in women. It had actually gotten worse. And so it felt like both a big opportunity as it related to gender and impact, which is an area I had been working in as a CEO. And to me, the two weren't disjointed strategy. If anything, many women and diverse leaders start companies that are tackling problems they've experienced firsthand. And so the two went hand in hand. So that was how I was inspired to get started.
0: You mentioned your mom. So obviously I want to go there a little bit. So like you have that legacy. So tell us about your mom. That's interesting. I didn't know like what did she do and did that inspire you to start this thing? It sounds like it.
2: Well, it's funny. She started one of probably the first and largest institutional venture capital fund investing in female leaders. And at the time, I honestly didn't think it was a big issue. Women, it wasn't something I have focused on. I was very focused on racial inequality and other issues. And I remember there was a magazine cover. I was in high school where she was on the cover with boxing gloves, superimposed. They wanted to put a cigar superimposed in her mouth. And there was like a whole debate of whether that was okay. And I just assumed, you know, fast forward to years later of being in employers and places and schools where everything was equal, that these issues were a thing of the past. And so As a CEO and as someone who had gone to business, well, I just thought I was going to stay on that path. And it really was when I saw the data of how different and frankly, a little had changed that it occurred to me that probably moving money into this space was a pretty big opportunity. So yes, she inspired me, but not probably as one of those childhood lifelong dreams to be like my mother.
0: What was the name of her fund?
2: It was called Women's Growth Capital Fund. Got it. It was an SBA-backed fund, and you know, at the time,
1: agree or disagree, Forrest Gump ruined our namesake.
2: <laughs> I have to <laughs> tell you, my freshman year at Stanford, which may be aging myself, the number of people who yelled Jenna down the uh, the palm <laughs> <laughs> story <laughs> of my life was <laughs> nonstop. Yes, yes, okay. that's um, I. I obviously had to ask that question. Yeah, I've been asked that on a podcast before, and definitely the best way. Is it
0: out? Of, is it out of favor now? Is it more common to say Jennifer? I haven't met a lot of Jennies. That's true, well, actually. I
2: actually am just Jenny. I was born Jenny, not Jennifer. Strangely, and so okay. I spent most of my life telling people it's just Jenny, which I think my sister nicknamed me JJ for just Jenny because I was saying. <laughs> it. But I think it has gotten less popular. I think 1977 may have been the peak of the name Jenny.
1: Jennifer, Jenny and Jen are all just like fundamentally different human beings, if you didn't already know, but it is like it's a whole thing. So you're an OG, Jenny, which is amazing. Shifting gears a little bit, I guess, back to the focus area. So what sort of sectors does a fund focus on? What's the average ticket size? Would you consider yourselves to be more active and really hands on with your portfolio companies you know, and have, have a more of a passive strategy?
2: great questions. So we invest in female CEO-led companies and frankly, diverse companies more broadly. Our thesis is really that diversity drives returns. Mm -hmm. All of our companies are US-based and we can make exceptions, but that has been where we focused. We focus on four main sectors that we think are both society's greatest challenges and really large business opportunities because we are focused on returns first. Digital health, We tend to avoid medical devices and things that need FDA approval. Education, we're excited about future of work, upskilling solutions there. We've invested in things like Guild Education or now called Guild as as an example. Education also can include things like Winnie, which is early childhood marketplace, helping providers and also helping families find solutions financial inclusion. We love looking for companies that has fintech helping families move up the economic ladder, and earn more money or save money. And so that can be anything from candidly, which tackles debt as, and financial wellness broadly to even things in the care economy, like wealthy and another business there. And then finally we invest in climate tech. So we tend to shy away from hardware and really capital intensive businesses. We like more data and software type businesses. To answer your question on check size, honestly, we can go in super early. So a company can have a half a million in ARR or a million in ARR, and we can go in when they have 20 or 30 million in ARR. And so our check size varies and our stage varies from a late seed to a series C in terms of when we come in. We lead often, but we're actually also happy to co-invest We really try to do what makes sense for us and what makes sense for the entrepreneur and what's most catalytic in the moment. And we look at about a thousand companies a year, of which we pick four or five to invest in. So we can adjust based on what makes sense.
1: And you're based in the DC area. Do you have any sort of geographic focus within the DC area or any mandate?
2: We have team members all over. So we have someone in California, Chicago, Pittsburgh, New York, and our view is one, we all look at everything. I'm on three boards in California, two right. boards in New York, a board in Boston. And our general view is we love companies that are somewhere in between as well. Mm-hmm. We're in Oregon right now. We're looking at something in the South. And so we really want as much diversity as we can in all ways. And we believe that, and we think the world now also believes this and finally experienced this in COVID. You can do a lot by Zoom. And especially for diverse entrepreneurs or women who have kids. We don't want having to be face-to-face to to be a barrier to getting our investment dollars. Yep.
0: That makes sense and that allows you to broaden because you have a very specific focus. Obviously you wanna capture all the best opportunities in that area. I'm curious, was it easy or hard to start a fund that invests a little bit different than the traditional kind of venture fund? On the one hand, obviously there's a trend of people having an interest to see more diversity. Uh, But on the other hand, historically, it hasn't been that way in this industry. How did you go about starting? Was it hard? Where did you go first to get your first commitments?
2: I would say starting a fund is probably never easy. Anyone who tells you it's easy is probably wrong, especially when at the time when I would share the data about gender, most people would say that can't possibly be true. How is it possible that less than 3% of venture dollars are going to women if all of that data about returns is is real. And when you talk about the TAM, the total addressable market of these big impact problems and businesses that are serving the 99%, again, it's hard sometimes for people to get their minds around it, especially traditional investors. That said, once you spell out the data, it actually is a very compelling case. And we were fortunate that I think once people saw that, And in particular, in Fund 2, when we had real examples to point to of companies that were doing this and that were scaling and that were large, I think, and the world had started to be more open and interested in diversity. I think it made it very different in 2020 than in 2016. And so I think that was a big shift that happened. And I think our entrepreneurs are amazing and their work speaks for themselves. What do you think
1: it will take for the venture ecosystem as a whole to change that statistic, right? Obviously, uh, funds such as yours and that money going to female entrepreneurs and management teams, but what else is part of the equation and what do you think needs to happen?
2: It's a great question. I I think the data only takes you so far because data Mm -hmm. doesn't feel real. And so you read it and you say, of course, I'd love it, but I don't have an FDO flow or I don't have whatever it is. And I can joke that I have binders full of women until it's in your network, it's harder. I do think one of the most powerful ways for us to get there is examples of success. So when people see a Sally Krawcheck and Elevest with huge growth and huge opportunity, or they see an April Co from Spring Health getting a two and a half billion dollar valuation and really seeing the opportunity that mental health care for the 99% being led by an immigrant female CEO, I think it starts to make it real in a different way. And when I say it real, I mean the opportunity real in a way that maybe wasn't before. And I think that every time another great CEO has success, and even more so when you see these companies start to go public and get sold, I think that's what starts to make change. I think the other piece that makes change happen is getting more and more diverse partners at big venture funds. Because at the end of the day, female partners are twice as likely to invest in female entrepreneurs, as an Mm -hmm. example. And that's because venture is such a pattern matching business. And so I don't think it's that men have anything against women or people. I think it's just there's a lot of pattern matching that happens on a subconscious level. And so getting more diversity on fund teams is very valuable in terms of making change. And what advice
1: do you have specifically for female founders? In terms of? Success. Well, just there's the general advice that that you would give to all entrepreneurs and I guess I'm asking what is that added layer above that that could be given to female founders who are juggling multiple responsibilities or having a hard time with fundraising because of their gender just from a general sense any advice that you would give which would be associated specifically to female founders.
2: Yeah, a couple things jump to mind. I think one Female-led businesses, and this is obviously an overgeneralization, but the data does show this, tend to be more capital efficient. I'm 25% less spending per month on average. And I think this is a great moment, therefore, for female-led companies, because I think the market is starting to reward companies that are more capital efficient. People are paying more attention, investors, to unit economics, to burn ratios. And so I think recognizing this is a great moment, if you're a capital efficient leader, to stand out. And we're seeing that happen right now in the portfolio. And that if you really have fundamental economics that are good, um, to make sure you're sharing that. So I'd say that's one. And I don't expect that to go away anytime soon with these shifts in the market. I think the second is there's been a lot of research on promotion versus prevention questions. And then investors, male and female, tend to ask, much more prevention questions to female CEOs. For example, what are you going to do in a downturn? How will you handle this if it goes wrong? And to male entrepreneurs, they ask much more promotion questions. Like, how do you take this business to a billion dollars? And I think it's a really important skill to one, be able to hear what kind of question you got and then turn it around to make your answer a promotion answer. And that's a specific skill that I think female entrepreneurs can work on.
0: So I remember back when we were doing early stage, we had a number of companies that were led by female CEOs and female founders, and I can relate to some of the benefits that you alluded to, Jenny. I'm wondering further from that, if you dial in a little bit deeper, what are some of the insights that a female founder would have or that would bring to bear in an opportunity that may be a male could not, like, do they have a certain affinity for certain kind of businesses? Are they better at certain things? Is there, is there some things that you have noticed through your experience that are like, oh, this is another way that they have a leg up basically or in certain businesses or in certain functions? Yes.
2: First of all, I should say. Men are wonderful too. And many have great (laughs) insights. So I am married to one like it is not meant to, but I do think there is this old assumption that women have great insights into lipsticks and suitcases and certain types of companies, all of which I would not be an investor in because it's not my area of expertise. But I think their expertise often go well beyond that. And whether it's the healthcare system and the numbers and percentages of decisions being made in healthcare by women, frankly, many other purchasing decisions. How you experience healthcare, not just for yourself, but for children is another example, the education system and how you experience that workforce, the care economy, which is a massive opportunity that we're very invested in. Women are often who is left taking care of not just their children, but the generation above them. And so for so many of these massive opportunities, mental health care, student debt disproportionately affects women. So many of the areas we invest in, women are disproportionately impacted by it and or their children are impacted. And so I think it gives them very unique insights. I think the same is true of all kinds of diverse entrepreneurs who have unique insights into problems that are affecting vast majorities of our population. And so I think it's a real advantage. We often say that some of the best entrepreneurs we know have personally experienced the problem they're solving. In the case of Ellie Kaplan and Neurotrack, she had family members with Alzheimer's, and it really impacted her so much that she wanted to start a company that was able to better diagnose and treat Alzheimer's. Lindsay Juris Rosner secretly cared for her mother for 28 years while working a full-time job, while going to Harvard Business School, and then wanted to start wealthy so that other people could be in their jobs and have the support they needed to care for family members. So to us, this is a very powerful force. And it gives you a level of grit when you run into barriers that if it was just the financial returns might be hard to overcome, but that allows them to push through it and then make the financial results better.
0: Yeah. I was going to ask, maybe giving an example. So you kind of mentioned a few there. Is there one company that maybe you want to tell the story of like how you found them and then what they're doing specifically and where they are right now that kind of showcases your strategy?
2: A really interesting business is a company run by a woman, Laurel Taylor, and she grew up with not a ton of money, ended up getting a lot of student debt in college, went on to be a very successful person at Google, and then decided to go back to business school. So she got into Sloan, MIT, went to business school. And when I was going to look at her bio to reference and do diligence, one of the people I wanted to call was her boss at Google, who informed me that. She was full-time at Google the whole time. She was a full-time student at Sloan, MIT, which is pretty wow. astounding. And he said to me, she was one of my best employees all that time. And I remember saying to her, that's a lot. I, there's, I don't know about you all, but I, there's no way I probably could have done a full-time job while at business school. And she said, I just didn't want more debt. And so out of that, she easily could have gone back to stayed with Google She ended up starting a company, Candidly, which was really trying to get rid of student debt and really allowing employers who often thought so much about retirement, but forgot that for so many workers, they can't even begin to do matching retirement dollars because they need every dollar to go to their debt payments. So she helped figure out how do you help people adjust their loans, lessen their loans, shorten the time, every aspect of it. And then think about financial wellness more broadly, which obviously now there's a lot of legislative tailwinds in that direction. And she has been a leader. And I have to believe that her success, she just got a very successful Series B led by Altos Ventures. And she has continued to be successful with major companies, Salesforce, Fiserv, UBS Bank, using her on their platform. And I believe not only is it that it's a great business idea, but I also believe her personal Experience has allowed her to make it a more successful company.
0: And what's the name of the company? It's called Candidly. Candidly. Okay. Got it.
2: In your view,
1: what is the best thing about being a venture capitalist and what is the worst or
2: hardest? That's a great question. I think the best thing about being a venture capitalist is that the job has so many parts to it. And so it's always interesting. And You can use lots of different skills and you can support lots of amazing people who are trying, in my case, who are trying to change the world. So it's a pretty high leverage way to have an impact and it's fascinating. So if you're a constant learner, it's very fun, very fascinating Mm -hmm. with amazing people. I'd say the worst part, is just never quite enough time to have an impact in all the ways that you could and want to, and there's no sort of quote unquote finishing So there's no real way to turn it off. You have to be very disciplined to to do that. What are some trends that you
1: find to be particularly exciting right now? What sort of companies are you looking for?
2: I think the trends that there are a lot of trends that we're particularly interested in, I'll I'll name a couple. One is caregiving. Mm -hmm. Uh, In some ways, I think it is what mental health was a few years ago where the world started to wake up and say, oh, we have a mental health crisis. We actually need to deal with this. And this isn't just, a kind thing to do, for example, for workers, but we need to do this because otherwise our workers will literally not be able to function as well. And so then you saw a massive sort of business response to that. And I am a big believer capitalism can be a great response to real problems. Similarly, caregiving, 75% of the world's unpaid labor, whether it's household work and childcare, is done by women. And so the global pandemic that shuttered schools and forced many sort of knowledge workers to work from home, I think women ended up facing a disproportionate share of the burden, which was challenging, but it also helped us expose what a huge unserved market there was. And I think there was a study recently that showed that female founders taken on massive percentage of caregiving. They were spending seven plus hours on daily, daily caregiving pre-COVID to a much bigger number. And so I think what came from that is good is a conversation that was happening. And again, employers to me is a great example of this where businesses like Wealthy, W-E-L-T-H-Y, could help show employers that their employees who use Wealthy who are caregivers are I don't know, a third less likely to take a leave of absence, or to quit their jobs, that's real ROI. And so I think when companies like Best Buy or others who have frontline workers who can give that kind of support, it's really good for their business. And Care Academy, where they're helping train home care workers to be able to serve more people and make more money themselves, and helping home care agencies to have those workers trained, it's a win-win for everyone. So I think that's a space we're really excited about. Obviously, sustainability, I am not the only one to say this, but is another area. The bipartisan legislation that went through creates a lot of opportunity for those of us who are excited to have an impact on the planet. And I think there are a lot of really smart entrepreneurs who are starting to tackle those issues in ways that leverage that legislation. I'm not just saying that since I live in Washington.
0: Can you tell us a little bit of now shifting gears about your kind of personal background? Did you grow up in the D.C. area?
2: I did grew up in Washington, D.C. I, I moved probably as far away for college and then even further to Europe and then ended up about five minutes from home.
0: So tell us about that kind of path <laughs> and why you took that path and why you came back.
2: Yeah, I grew up in Washington, D.C. I was lucky to go to the first racially integrated school in Washington, started by a bunch of parents during a time of segregation called Georgetown Day School, which had a very unusual philosophy, not just for that reason, but it was all about Learning, loving to learn and learning to change the world. And that your job was to leave the world in a better place than you found it. And that was really impactful. And I think when I got to Stanford, I was frankly a little surprised because there were all these people who had been gunning their whole life to get into college. And that hadn't been the focus, it had just been about learning. And it was a bit eye opening, but it was a really interesting experience. And it took me a little while to figure out my place. But Took advantage of a lot of great resources and ended up doing some work abroad as a Fulbright in human genomics and the ethical and political implications of the Human Genome Project. And so, as every path and every step, I was gravitated towards the private sector in terms of my skill set, but always really cared about impact. And for a while, I was bounced back and forth. I'd be at BCG and then I'd be at Teach for America. I would do one thing and then the other. And then it occurred to me, partly, I was at Harvard Business School, which had some entrepreneurial paths in it. But it occurred to me that there must be jobs that you could do both, which I think now people today, it's very obvious, they're graduating, they demand this as opposed to the old school way of I'm going to go make a lot of money and then give it to charity. And so I went on a path of jobs and careers, whether it was at the Washington Post, where I felt like there was impact there to the work they were doing, but where I could use my business skills, but have an impact. And that's how I landed back in D.C., was for the first job at a business school at the Washington Post.
0: Do you like living in D.C.? I mean, I think it's very diverse, very cosmopolitan. It has changed a lot because I lived here like after graduating from college in the mid-90s, and it wasn't quite the same. So I'm curious about your thinking about how it is to live here.
2: Yeah, I love Washington. I think it's probably the most livable, wonderful city in the world. I think it has incredible amount of diversity. It has a highly educated population. It has a population that cares about impact. So you have a lot of talent. It has free museums. It has pretty good restaurants. I know New Yorkers will always say not as good. You can get to New York easily if you want to.
0: What's your favorite restaurant? Do you have um, a favorite?
2: <laughs> my dad was part of starting Cafe Atlantico and Haleo oh, yeah. restaurants. So I, my sister got married in one of them. So I'm a little biased towards that, but I'm a big sushi lover and I've always loved anything that has sushi as part of it. So I'd say that's my favorite, but I think DC is great. And I think it's, while I love that we have people in all the traditional corridors of venture um, who I get to work with. I do think it also gives a very different perspective when you live here.
1: What would you say the three most important characteristics are for a CEO, a founder that you would want to back?
2: I'd say one is that they surround themselves with diverse leaders. I think Mm -hmm. women are particularly good at this, but people who are different from themselves, I think that it's very easy to want to just be with people who are like you, but they're often going to see the world the same way. And I think your company is set up for much more success if they're different. I think the second is grit, which is obviously hard to measure, but Mm -hmm. as you all know, there are a lot of roadblocks and problems you run into when you're in these jobs. And so being someone who has past examples of how they've gotten past that and such an incredible drive for the problem they're solving that will help them have extra grit, I think is very powerful. And then I think the third is, and obviously there are many others, but I do think being able to sell what you are doing is a very important skill to customers, to investors and others. And I think early on, we always value the best product, the best tech, the best everything. And I'd say we might have undervalued a couple of times how important it is that leader be able to really articulate and sell and love to sell what they're doing. And I think that becomes very important, especially in the fundraising side.
1: Definitely. Moving over to our four standard question segment, we're looking forward to hearing your answers. Our first question is the National Venture Capital Association question. The MVCA advocates for public policy that supports the venture community and the American entrepreneurial ecosystem. If there is one thing that you would change about the VC industry or one policy that you'd advocate for, what would it be?
2: As an impact investor, it would be great to see friendlier terms for ESG investing, getting approved in Congress, getting support like retirement plans, being able to consider environmental, social, and governance or ESG issues in all their investment decisions. I find it somewhat disheartening to see the sort of partisan battle playing out over these issues when I actually think there's a lot of data to show that ESG is also just good business. And so I don't like it being made partisan. Obviously, the MVCA has done a good job connecting the BC industry to leaders on, on many of these things. But I think that is probably one of the areas that I care most about.
1: Number two, if you weren't a VC and money wasn't a concern, what career would
2: you have? I may be silly or nerdy, but I probably wouldn't change a thing. I am deeply passionate about leveraging the private sector to create change and equity and believe that inequality, that this is really the most effective path, at least for me to be able to, it doesn't mean that the government and nonprofits don't have a critical role to play, but at this moment- I think it's an effective way to put more dollars into hands that will actually make change. So I love what I do, as you heard before. So I don't think I would change my job. Maybe I'd work a few hours, but. Plot
1: twist. If you had to have a side hustle though.
2: I was recently at a bot mitzvah and those ape dancers that are now at these <laughs> types of things. Seems super fun. I have a friend of mine from high school and I were both at this thing. We we're like, this is a good gig. I used to be a dancer years ago. So that seems really fun.
1: I want to be on the senior cheerleading squad for the Wizards. That's my goal. I might want to do that now.
2: That's pretty um, awesome. We had the <laughs> Mystics, their hip hop group. We had them come to an event we did. They were amazing. Although I don't think I could hold a candle there. And I was just in Tennessee for a work trip. And it turns out had a skill that I really never expected, which is ax throwing. I'm really apparently a good ax thrower. So maybe if that, if there's some career in ax throwing. That is awesome. But no. So I think that's probably the hype dancers problem I have to go with.
1: Okay. Love it. Number three is who is someone that you look up to and why?
2: It's probably less one person, but all of our CEOs. It can be so hard to run a company. And I've experienced that firsthand. And these amazing female CEOs have experienced the problems they're solving and they just continue to go up against every battle, to go up against the industry being more challenging and to do incredible work. So I would say I look up to, it depends on the day, which one I'm looking up to, but that's right. what I look up to. Awesome.
1: Our last question is what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received?
2: I'd say my mom always said that the best thing we can do is to leave the world better than how you found it. And I got similar advice from teachers at GDS. And so I, I guess I'd say that's probably the, to have that kind of North Star in every choice you make in the work, at least for me, has been pretty helpful. That's great advice.
0: On that note, thank you for joining us. We really enjoyed learning more about you, your background, and what you all are doing at Rethink Impact. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you so much for having me and I am happy to connect with anyone who's interested in this space. Probably Twitter. I'm at Abramson Jenny is the easiest place to find me.
0: Great. Thank you.
1: And follow us on Twitter at ProofBC or on our website at Proof.bc.